This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. It's now been eight days since Hurricane Ian made landfall here in Lee County. As people who were hardest hit continue to do what they can to get through these times, mental health professionals are urging people to do what they can to connect with others and be mindful of their own mental well-being. On today's show, we're going to talk with someone from NAMI Collier County's Warm Line. It's a free statewide mental health support service that's open 365 days a year from 4 to 10 p.m. They're not a crisis line, and operators aren't mental health professionals but are trained as peer specialists who are there for anyone who needs someone to talk about their own mental health or any issues they're struggling with. Then later in the show, we're also going to listen to a conversation WGCU's Carrie Barber had with someone from the David Lawrence Centers for Behavioral Health in Naples about the sensitive topic of suicide and what resources are available to those with suicidal thoughts and those who love them. And as always, if you'd like to engage with the show or share any stories, photos, or videos of what you're experiencing right now, please do so using WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. First up, I spoke earlier today via cell phone with Jenny Lapham. She's the Florida Warm Line Coordinator with NAMI Collier County. Again, it's a free mental health support phone service that's open 365 days a year from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. to anyone in Florida. They can be reached by calling 1-800-945-1355. That's 1-800-945. Let's hear that conversation now. Jenny, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you for having me back. So for starters, can you just remind our listeners what the warm line is? Yes, the warm line is a statewide mental health support line that is staffed entirely by certified recovery peer specialists. And a peer specialist is somebody who has their own personal lived experience with their own mental health diagnoses and experiences, and we use our experiences to help others. Have you been up and running on your normal schedule since the storm? We have. We have never lost a night. Um, It has been more challenging than typically is. Um, three of us were heavily impacted. Uh, two of us were um, are without water, power, internet, those things. But we have made it work, and uh, calls are a little shorter than normal so that we can maintain phone battery. But yes, we are up and running, never miss the night. So, in other words, your uh, people who take the calls, uh, who do, what do you call the people who take the calls, by the way, so I can refer to them correctly? Um, I mean, they can be operators in this context. I mean, they're, they're peer specialists, peer operators, whatever oh. you would like to call them. Okay, so they're all wonderful people. You could call them that. <laughs> so so your, your, your peer specialists that are taking the calls then by what you just said, they're doing this on their cell phones um, from their homes or wherever they can get signal then? Correct. Yes. We had one operator who was taking calls. Um, he was getting service by a stop sign down the street from his house. So that's sort of where he set up shop to take calls. Um, and that's, that's who we are. We do what we can do uh, when people need us. And uh, real quick, how big is your team? And just for clarity's sake, this is a statewide service, right? Correct. It's a statewide service, and there are five of us. Um, how has the call? <laughs> how has the call volume been? Are you able uh, to compare it to what your normal call volume is, or do you even have that kind of data? Um, I don't have access to that exact data right now because we don't have internet, um, and we, you know, cellular service is quite spotty. Uh, but the operators report that we have fewer calls by. A small margin. Um, Most people in the impacted areas where we are, I live in Fort Myers, um, can't call. We've only had a couple hurricane-related phone calls so far, Um, and that's for a lot of reasons, I imagine. (laughs) Uh, We'll speculate on what the reasons for that might be. Uh, For me, I would imagine that's because people don't have... 
power to charge their phones or if they had landlines, those are down. People don't have internet to find resources near them or around them. Um, people are also really in full-blown survival mode. So that is just like it would be in any sort of primal situation. It's, you know, water, food, shelter. Um, and fortunately, there are a lot of disaster relief organizations here that are helping people find those things. But phone-based support is going to be very difficult in areas where there's no power, no phone lines, uh, cell towers are destroyed, um, things like that. That's going to make that really difficult. But we have been providing support to people who are concerned about people in our area, uh, friends, family, people that, you know, they're just overwhelmingly concerned and that's affecting their mental health as well seeing this kind of destruction and, and death on TV and in the papers. So, Have you um, personally taken any calls that were directly storm-related, or have they been the kinds of calls you just characterized? Um, nothing directly storm-related from somebody who is um, in, in all of this with us, um, to my knowledge. I haven't talked to all the operators from last night, but as of yesterday, uh, we've had nobody call who is here with us in Fort Myers or um, Lee County, Collier County hmm. uh, that I'm aware of. So when you talked to your team, you know, or let's go back, when you talked to your team after the storm went through, did you have conversations about things that were directly related to what people are dealing with in case people did call? We are always prepared for that. Um, you know, that's part of our training, but it's also, you know, part of our ex experience. Every one of our operators has experienced hurricanes in the past, just any sort of climate disaster. We've had the same team um, apart from one operator since, before Irma, we've gone through several hurricanes together as a team. <laughs> um, so we are prepared for that heightened sense of, I don't know, the possibility of trauma, higher possibilities of high-risk phone calls, um, higher risks of mental health-related deaths. Um, those are things that we have to be on alert for. Um, but really, I much like when I talked about the warm line on the show before, you know, this is a really great opportunity for people um, to talk to a peer specialist, specifically, especially a peer specialist who's been impacted by the storm, because we get it, we understand, we can rise to the occasion if we can meet people where they're at. So we understand what it's like to experience a trauma on top of a critical mental health issue or experiencing something so horrifying and knowing that you can call somebody who's also experienced it and you can talk about anything but the hurricane. You can have a sense of normalcy because the other thing that's happening, and it's happening in my own personal life as well, is we don't, we as in citizens of the affected area, don't really want to burden other people with our problems when their problems are the same or worse. <laughs> or, you know, I'm not complaining to my husband about all of my stress because he has all of his stress on top of our joint stress with all of this. So the warm line is giving people the opportunity to call and say things that perhaps they're afraid to say to others about this experience. Um. You kind of have touched on this already, but can you go a bit more deeply into the ways trauma from a storm like this can sort of rock the boat of people who are already dealing with mental health struggles, you know, when there isn't a storm that just came through? Uh, sure. So, again, I can speak from my own experience. Um, I was not, I was in a depressed state before the storm hit. Um, 
And so that can manifest in a couple different ways. So for some people who are experiencing depression or any sort of um, strong symptoms related to their diagnoses, when there's a an impending disaster, um, that can that can manifest in ambivalence or you know just general apathy or I don't need to do anything, I'm not going to prepare, or I don't have the energy to really prepare because mental health symptoms can be very exhausting. So that sense of urgency and self-preservation can uh, weaken or just go out the window entirely. So that is always a concern when there's a climate disaster because so much preparation for people who are not evacuating or leaving their homes so much preparation is needed. Even if resources are low, there's still things you can do. You know, you can still kind of lift things off the floor in your home or protect your windows or, you know, just find a plan of where you could go in your house or trailer or apartment or wherever you're staying that is safe. I mean, those kinds of things, when you're ambivalent, or when you're experiencing depression or mania, you know, conversely, people who are experiencing mania or psychosis feel like they could take on the storm. Bring it. I can survive this. And then, you know, are going outside (laughs) during this kind of event. Um, It can go so many different ways. But in the aftermath of the storm, it's, it's such a profound sense of loss and hopelessness for people who have been so affected. I mean, especially with Hurricane Ian, people have lost not just all of their belongings and their home, but they've lost their communities. You know, typically when there's a personal disaster, if there's a house fire or something, a community can band together. And you can go to your favorite restaurant or your favorite, you know, local haunt and find some sort of social relief from some of this. So people have lost their whole sense of community. They're all of their safe spots, all of the places they go to cool off, all of the things that they do to unwind or to soothe their mental health symptoms or, you know, So many people have lost access to their, what are they going to do when they need medication? What are they going to do when their psychiatrist or therapist or whomever has been displaced or that office is gone? You know, these are very, very significant ongoing issues that that cleanup cannot address, that restoring power cannot address. That's where it becomes really critical. It's not... It's not about are you safe after the storm. That's not the the appropriate mental health conversation. It's ongoing checking in with people every day, every couple hours, if you can, and asking how they're doing and what you can do to help, but also to be open to their stories. How is this affecting you? Even if people's houses are fine or where they live is, is untouched, what we're seeing around us is is absolutely terrifying. Are there kinds of calls that, because you guys are such a small team and stretch for resources, that you would sort of prefer people not make? Like, you know, do you know where there's water or, you know, sort of sort of <laughs> mundane things? Or are you just you guys are there for for whatever? And if you can't pass along the information, you'll do your best to direct them in the right in, in the right direction. Uh, we are the latter. We have fallen to the latter camp. We will always answer every question that we have the answers to. We will always direct people to the uh, to people who might have more current or up to date information. There's there's not really calls that we're not taking or wouldn't prefer because um, mental health needs manifest differently for every person. Somebody might not be depressed or might not realize they're depressed or might not realize they've been affected by this, and it's coming out in a different way. Um, but I will say 
that calling the warm line, um, please be mindful that the people that are answering the calls are going through something incredibly significant um, right there with you, or if you're not part of uh, this event directly, to have compassion for the people who are answering the phone. Make sure you're calling with purpose. Um, you know, maybe not expect to talk nearly as long as normal if there's not something pressing because we have to uh, save phone battery. Um, and be kind. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't do it happily or easily, but uh, I, I do flag inappropriate callers. And an inappropriate caller would be rude, condescending, um, speaking without compassion, being very demanding of operators. Um, that doesn't fly with me. <laughs> it might fly with some of the operators out of their own kindness and their training and, and their individual um, boundaries. But for me, as the coordinator, that, that doesn't fly with me. Um, I know you are, you know, you're, you have limited access to information, but do you have a sense of, of to what degree NAMI Collier is back up and running with its normal services? Uh, so all of NAMI Collier's programs are doing their work. All of, <laughs> all of NAMI Collier has uh, communicated with each other, each program. So right now, um, every program is reaching out, except at the warm line is different. It's a different entity uh, because people come to us. We don't call them. But NAMI Collier as a whole is reaching out to the people um, that we typically serve, our members of the drop-in center, um, participants in the Florida Self-Directed Care Program, uh, recipients of HUG services, Health Under Guided Systems, um, anyone who is currently involved with NAMI Collier, uh, we are working to connect with all of them. And then we're also strategizing in the community as far uh, in Naples, as far as uh, coming up with lunches, you know, food preparation. Um, we will be partnering, so to speak, with various organizations to provide um, all kinds of services, not just mental health services, uh, to the affected area. And that's still taking shape. Um, in the past, we had, uh, in, with Hurricane Irma, um, we had ongoing relief contracts and services uh, specifically for hurricane relief out in the community. We had that, I believe it lasted six months. So I'm sure that something similar will happen again. So we're trying to get back to where we were on track with the people that we serve regularly who are part of our programs. And also on the side, we are working on a whole other full-time job trying to address the community um, and serve them as best as we can in the wake of this. Um, so remind our listeners what the number is and what hours you all are available. Our phone number is one 800 945-1355, and we take calls every night of the year from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And again, this is statewide, and it's free, so anyone listening can call or can pass this number along to somebody else in Florida. Yep. All right. Now well, and forever. Well, maybe not forever. I don't know what forever looks like, but yes. For the <laughs> it doesn't have to be just related to this. Understood. Okay. Well, any final thoughts, Jenny? I'm just really proud of my community. I'm so proud of Fort Myers and I'm proud of Naples. I'm proud of everything I'm seeing in these communities of resilience and people helping each other. And there's, oh, there's no, there's no division like there is typically, right? Just socially. There's no divide in these kinds of situations. And I am so impressed by the way people are conducting themselves and helping each other and helping strangers and helping to not just rebuild 
um, physically, you know, their homes, their, their neighborhoods, but just rebuild emotionally and providing that kind of support to, to everyone is, oh, it keeps me going. I wake up, I see it, I love it. And um, I hope that anyone who feels like they're going to be a burden if they ask for help or people don't have the capacity to listen to them, I, I encourage you to push that thought aside and reach out to the nearest stranger. Ask how they're doing, share what you need because um, we are in the giving spirit to each other. And I'm just so, so, so proud of us. All right, Jenny Lapham is Florida Warm Line Coordinator with NAMI Collier County. Jenny, thank you so much for your time and for the work you and your team are doing. Thank you so much for having me. I hope everybody listening uh, is okay. Again, the Warm Line number is 1-800-945-1355. They are available every day from 4 to 10 p.m. to talk with you if you need someone to talk to. To hear a longer conversation about the work being done by Nami Collier and the Warm Line on an episode of this show that ran back in July, go to wgcu.org gcl and find today's episode. There'll be a link there. There have been two confirmed deaths by suicide in Lee County since Hurricane Ian, two men, one aged 70 and the other 73. So for the rest of today's show, we're going to listen to a conversation WGCU's Carrie Barber had last month with Jessica Liria about the topic of suicide. Jessica is Community Outreach Specialist with the David Lawrence Centers for Behavioral Health in Naples. They talked about resources for mental health first aid. Carrie spoke with Jessica because WGCU TV recently aired a documentary called Facing Suicide that looked closely into who may choose death by suicide and why, particularly suicide in seniors, which is a very large problem. In fact, in 2020, the age group with the highest rate of suicide was people age 85 and older. The second highest rate was age 75 to 84. Remember, if you are thinking about harming yourself or attempting suicide, tell someone who can help right away by calling or texting to the number 988. Eight. Let's hear that conversation now. Welcome to Gulf Coast Life. I'm your host, Carrie Barber. WGCU PBS TV recently aired a documentary called Facing Suicide that looked closely into who may choose death by suicide and why. Of particular interest to us here at WGCU is suicide in seniors, which is a large problem. In fact, in 2020, the age group with the highest rate of suicide was people age 85 and older. The second highest rate was age 75 to 84. Today, we have the opportunity to hear more about the PBS documentary Facing Suicide from its executive producer, Michael Rosenfeld. But first, we have a conversation with Jessica Liria, Community Outreach Specialist with the David Lawrence Centers for Behavioral Health. She's part of the Mental Health First Aid Program at David Lawrence, and I started by asking her about that. Tell me about the Mental Health Training Program at David Lawrence Center. Just can you kind of give me a general overview? Absolutely. So Mental Health First Aid, it's an evidence-based training that was actually developed in Australia in the year 2000. And since then, it's been adopted in over 25 different countries. Each country does a revision of the content so that it really reflects their society's culture and kind of the challenges that are being seen uh, within that location. So we at David Lawrence Centers for Behavioral Health, we trained instructors, um, myself as well as a colleague of mine back in 2018 in the youth module. And after we saw a really great uh, kind of feedback from the community, we decided we were going to move forward and be trained in the adult module as well. Um, so the training is really designed to allow anyone in the community to feel more comfortable approaching and addressing any type of mental health concern that somebody may be having. It goes through signs and symptoms um, so that they are able to notice some things and start the conversation as early as possible. Mental health first aid is really 
best used as an early intervention. Um, and when we intervene early in some challenges related to mental health, it really yields the most successful outcomes. And so within that training, um, participants are really taught about those common concerns, those signs and symptoms, as well as an action plan that they can put uh, into use as they move forward. So going through how to assess the situation, how to be able to really utilize some non-judgmental listening skills so the individual they're speaking with feels heard, understood, and acknowledged. Um, it goes through how we can give reassurance and what that sounds like, as well as how we can provide information. And then there's uh, two components to encourage some support. So that could either be professional support, and it goes through what types of professionals they can reach out to, as well as uh, self-help and other support strategies. So things like um, you know, what they can do on their own or other people that they can reach out to that are nearby. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you. So are you training other staff there at David Lawrence, or are you strictly in contact with clients from the community or both? Um, it's really opened up to any community member, so anyone, no matter what their background, um, just kind of like how somebody might take a CPR or first aid class, that's designed to just give somebody some skills to be able to intervene and really save somebody's life until medical professionals get there. And so this is the same concept. It's giving some skills and some tools so that we know what to do um, to kind of observe any non-crisis or crisis situations, provide that help help and encouragement, um, and maybe we're just the catalyst to be able to link somebody with professional support or help direct them to where, where to go in that. Um, but it's really designed for anyone and everyone. So we do have some staff members that have taken the training, primarily those that don't really have much clinical or mental health background. Um, but we've also done it with just anyone in the community, parents, friends, neighbors, um, church organizations, after school programs. So um, really there's no limit as to who can take the course. There's no prerequisite for it. Um, it's really just anyone that wants to be able to offer that helping hand. And we also want everyone in the community to know that it's everyone's responsibility to kind of watch out for one another, um, maintain really a safe and effective community, and ensure that everyone that we interact with in our daily lives has the accessibility to professional support or just know how to get their own support if that's something that they're interested in. And is it like a regular sort of course at David Lawrence or do people contact you when they want the training or how does that work? Yeah, so on our website, um, we have an events page, and all of our upcoming trainings are listed there. Um, typically, we do charge a small fee for the training, so we usually do $26 per person. However, right now, we do have um, a grant through the Clark Family Foundation, so we're able to provide the training at no cost for a limited time. Um, so if anybody's interested in taking the training, they just need to go to our website, dlcenters.org, go to that events page, and then they'll see those upcoming dates. Right now, we're scheduling them uh, where we're doing an adult module every other month, and then in between those months, we're doing a youth module. So every month, there's a training available. Uh, we do have a maximum number of participants is at 30. Um, so if there's ever a time that we go over that number of registrations, they just go on a wait list um, or be moved into the next future training that we have available. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a really great resource for the community. Wow. And specifically what I wanted to talk to you about is uh, suicide prevention in seniors. And I wonder if we could just kind of pivot to that for a bit. Um, how big of a problem is that in in the senior population? Well, unfortunately, we see that as a very large problem. Um, men 65 and older, they have the highest overall rates of suicide. And when we really think about our population in general, um, older adults, they account for 12% of the population, but unfortunately, 18% of suicides. And so when we think about, you know, that, that elderly group, we think of 
the number of reasons that can really lead them to having thoughts of suicide. And I do want to really preface that by saying suicide is not necessarily the problem. It's usually a symptom of a bigger mental health challenge, something like depression. Um, so for older adults, we see a lot more onset of depression um, because of kind of their quality of life and the things that um, they are experiencing at an older age. You know, they themselves struggle with a lot of grief, seeing loved ones and friends um, passing away. They also are more prone to chronic illness and pain. Um, so we know that 80% of older adults live with a chronic disease and 77% have more than one chronic disease. Um, so they really are dealing with a number of challenges. Um, we also see their quality of life affected, some loss of independence, um, maybe some cognitive impairment. And then sadly, there's often financial strain in the elderly uh, community as well. So being concerned about you know, where their next meal might come from or how they're going to pay you know, their rent or their mortgage next time. Um, you know, they have very limited income. And if somebody's living on Social Security alone, that's usually not enough. Um, and so they sometimes feel like they're a burden to others in their family. Uh, so we absolutely see that um, as a a big challenge and a big problem. And to go a little bit further, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau projects that by the year 2060, the number of individuals aged 65 and older will be actually double what it is today. Um, so we're looking at a, a much bigger problem if we don't start to put some solutions in place now. Wow. Yeah, th this is really, these statistics are really bracing. I had no idea that this problem was this big. And another statistic that you furnished me with is that 25% of seniors who attempt suicide die by suicide compared to 0.5 of younger people. So when older people attempt it, they tend to be much more successful, it sounds like, which is also alarming. Yeah. And, you know, um, we kind of go back to the planning and, and the high risk uh, with the stages of planning. And so for the elderly population, there tends to be a lot more planning involved, um, which kind of leads to once they do it, um, they're pretty sure that it's going to happen and they will complete it. Um, but then for those that might survive after their attempt, they're usually left with some lingering effects. So they might not even recover fully from those effects and may have uh, more pain, more uh, cognitive impairment, uh, depending on how um, or what method they utilized for their attempt. So you had said at the beginning that we are all sort of, we can all help each other. Oh. You know, we we can kind of keep an eye out for our neighbors and, and our relatives and stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? How can the community help uh, an isolated senior or a senior maybe with limited mobility? How does how does the community come into play um, to sort of, as you said, n not let them get to the point where they are thinking about suicide? Yeah, of course. And, you know, we think about our, our society at large, and there's still a very big stigma around mental health, and especially a stigma around suicide. We always think, you know, that it's kind of a taboo topic, and no one really wants to talk about it, um, which leaves people that struggle with thoughts of suicide really isolated and alone. They feel like they're not uh, welcome to talk about some of the challenges and feelings that they're having. So I would say as, as an any community member, you know, when you start to observe somebody, um, you know, maybe they're feeling sad for prolonged periods of time, or maybe they're more isolated or withdrawn than usual and just not engaged in things that they were once interested in, that's really the time to let that person know that you see them and you want to hear them and you want to pay attention to talk about what's going on, um, you know, asking them how they're feeling about certain situations and maybe someone and a, and a big reason 
why someone might not be so forthcoming with that information is because of that stigma, but we can continue to let them know that we're here and we're ready when they want to talk. Um, we want to be able to help. We're concerned about them. Um, so whether it's someone that we know really well, maybe a, a parent of ours or a grandparent um, or a neighbor, or maybe it's someone that we don't know so well, but we just maybe pass by them from time to time, we can still see some changes taking place. And so as long as we're reaching out and extending that hand and not being afraid to do that, um, you know, we, we all as humans, we want to feel accepted and we want to feel like we're a part of something. And so when an individual starts to feel hopeless and helpless and like they can't turn to anyone, sometimes that needs to be on us to say, hey, I'm here and I want to reach out and I want to offer you this helping hand um, and guide you or provide you with resources to be able to get through that. I also wanted to follow up by saying that the seniors in my life are not the type who went to therapy every week growing up or when they were young adults or something like that. Is there something that you can, is there some way you can help the people who might think that a kind of mental health first aid is not for them? Yeah, you know, I think times, they're, they're always changing. And when we kind of compare our upbringing or what was going on uh, when we were either even adolescents or young adults ourselves, and we try to compare that lifestyle to what's going on today, it's very different. There's been a lot of changes, a lot of movement. Even technology itself is a big one. Um, sometimes we feel as we get older like we're just struggling to keep up all the time. And so when we keep that kind of tough love approach or oh, someone should be able to just kind of pull up their bootstraps and get over it, um, you know, that's only contributing to that mental health stigma and allowing people, or I should say not allowing people to feel like they're able to reach out and ask for that help. And so we really have that stigma working against us two different ways. We have it, you know, as a society that doesn't want to talk about it, but then internally, if I am struggling with a mental health challenge or concern, I feel maybe a little ashamed or a little embarrassed. Um, and so I just would say to everyone in the community, if we can push down that stigma and realize that, you know, our brain is our most powerful organ. And if our brain is not healthy and our brain is not well, then the rest of us will not be able to be well. And so we really have to accept the fact that it is okay to reach out and ask for help. It is okay to talk about our feelings and our emotions and, um, you know, any type of challenge or struggles that we're having. When we talk about those types of things and we allow ourselves to be a little vulnerable, that's when we can really find the comfort and the connection from others. Whereas if we ignore it or we keep it to ourselves or we pretend it's not there and keep ourselves guarded, that's really inhibiting our ability to get that connection from those around us. Um, you know, we're a lot able to uh, problem solve a lot better. We're able to get through times of grief and struggle when we have others by our side. And so allowing ourselves to really be open about that, um, you know, we can continue to not only break the stigma, but we can also contribute to reducing these eye-opening statistics and really getting people uh, to seek the resources and seek the places where they need to go to find that help. Yeah, that's really well said. Thank you. How does physical, how do physical limitations play in, especially for for seniors, if, if there is a lack of mobility or perhaps a self-imposed isolation, um, is that a risk factor? And, and what do you recommend about that? It absolutely is a risk factor. So, you know, our physical movement does contribute to our mental health. You know, we think about the body and, and blood circulation and oxygen getting to our brain and the nutrients be able to get to where they need to go. And that's really all done through movement. Um, so if somebody has a reduced movement and not able to have as much physical um, physical involvement, um, any little thing, you know, there's, there's chair exercises 
exercises, they're stretching. Um, any types of movement are better than no movement at all. Um, and then when it comes to isolating ourselves, you know, it, it might be uncomfortable and it might be difficult, but when we start to realize that, wow, I, you know, I am starting to withdraw myself more or I don't have the interest in going and seeing my friends or seeing my family, working to really push through that, um, you know, being able to interact more, even if it's uncomfortable or not wanted at first, you know, over time, that'll kind of contribute and help to get us past some of those feelings of depression or isolation that we've been having. And when we're still not able to do that, um, you know, I go back to those are early signs that something bigger is going on. And so being able to address that as early as possible in a way that will work best for that person, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the recommendation and the suggestion is to be able to, as hard as it could be, to keep going and to keep reaching out and to keep doing that. And then also, on the other hand, letting somebody know, hey, you know, I'm having some challenges. I, I feel myself wanting to withdraw and wanting to be alone. Will you check up on me every now and then? And asking for help in that sort of way so that others nearby, whether it be loved ones, neighbors, friends, know that there's something going on and you want them to reach out um, because you don't want to remain isolated and alone anymore. How about, I mean, we talked before, if people want the training, they can look on your website. But how about if someone maybe is listening and they think, oh, she's talking about me, I need to reach out for some help. What what do you recommend? Yeah, so, you know, there's a, a few different things that somebody could do. And again, it really all depends on what works best for them. Some of us, we like to just get our information and our resources and we want to learn kind of on our own. So there are self-help. Help uh, strategies. There's websites, books, things like that that can really help us dive into the emotions that we're experiencing and give some suggestions on how to work through those and cope on our own. Um, but we certainly don't want anybody to feel like they're alone in it and that's all they have to do. So there are other resources available. You know, usually in every community, there's a not-for-profit. Uh, Behavioral Health Center, so David Lawrence Centers is that uh, community-based service in Collier County and the surrounding area. Um, so that allows somebody to reach out. There's a variety of different program opportunities, so really depending on what their needs are um, and what they're looking for, they can be connected with the program that's best for them. Uh, there's also, you know, professionals that work in a more private setting, so looking towards therapists or psychologists that may be on their own in a private practice. There's also some national resources available, too. Um, so there's the 988, which is a new number uh, for anybody that's experiencing a mental health crisis or any suicidal um, ideations and thoughts, they can reach out to 988 instead of 911 and be connected uh, right with crisis support specialists. There's also some great websites um, that are available nationally as well. So there's NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, there's NIMH, which is the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, so those are some great resources that provide more information around what's going on. Um, there's also another one, Psychology Today, um, which is a great website that somebody can actually go through and see what um, professionals are available in their area and really kind of filter down into gender preference, maybe cultural preference. Um, so there's a lot of options out there. Um, and mental health first aid is one of the, the sources of that is being able to put forward some of those resources. And so within that training, we actually dive a little bit deeper. We talk about what's available locally and nationally um, and provide anybody that goes through that training with those resources so they can take those and share them uh, as they see fit with others. That's great. Thank you. Um, those are really all my questions. Is there anything that you would like to add that I forgot to mention or that you want to be sure to get in, get in here? 
Um, the only thing is, you know, I know that this was really based more around suicide in the elderly population, um, but we also see suicide very prevalent among young people as well. So there's also a youth module for mental health first aid. So anyone that has any type of a role or interaction with young people, um, there's that training available as well. And so we offer both of those at David Lawrence Centers. Um, and again, we can just uh, look for the upcoming dates on our events page on our website. That was WGCU's Carrie Barber talking last month with Jessica Liria. She's Community Outreach Specialist with the David Lawrence Centers for Behavioral Health in Naples. The David Lawrence Centers in Naples is fully open and operational for all of its campuses and all services. If you are in immediate need of help, please call DLC's Emergency Services Crisis Hotline at 239-315-2538 or just dial 911. Their number again is 239-315-2538. And again, if you are thinking about harming yourself or attempting suicide, tell someone who can help right away by calling or texting the number 988. Carrie also spoke last month with Michael Rosenfeld. He is executive producer of the new PBS documentary called Facing Suicide that aired last month. She began by asking him about his interest in this topic. The documentary covers suicide, and which is a problem that I had no idea was so rampant in this country until I started working on this project. But can you tell me uh-huh. what why what made you want to work on this project and and tackle this subject? Suicide is a crisis that that affects thousands of people in the U.S. every year. Uh, there are some forty five thousand people who die by suicide each year uh, and rates have been have been rising fairly steadily since the late 1990s this is this is not something that that people often appreciate but suicide prevention experts know that this is a real a real issue um, all around the country it affects pretty much every demographic and every community and so the the idea of doing uh, a film and a major project about suicide was was appealing because there seems to be a real need for information about this. I think when you think about suicide, at least for many people, and and I think for me initially, you know, it seems somewhat incomprehensible. You know, your mind, the mind rebels a little bit at the, at the, at the notion of, of, um, you know, taking one's own life. But the fact is, as we discovered in, in working on this film, um, there's actually quite a lot that's known about the phenomenon of suicide. Uh, there's active research that has uncovered a lot about, you know, what the dynamic is, uh, what the risk factors are, uh, and also, you know, how to help people. So um, there's there's a there's an important story here that I think um, hasn't hasn't been told fully, certainly isn't isn't told frequently, and I think in some ways it's a public service to tell that story. Can you talk about what were some of the stumbling blocks in making this film? You know, Facing Suicide was a pretty challenging film to make. Uh, for one thing, the, the, the topic of suicide is, is very complex. And uh, I think for the film team, getting, getting our heads around the research and understanding what's known and still remains unknown about suicide you know that was a, that was a job in and of itself. Fortunately, we we had uh, we worked with a lot of experts and advisors who were very helpful in in helping us get a handle on on the subject matter. I would say there were several other challenges. One is that this is a very uh, difficult topic for people emotionally. Um, many people, I think more than 50% of Americans, have had some contact with suicide, and um, you know, and and so talking with people about it can be can be sensitive and, and challenging. So we were extraordinarily careful in conducting interviews and talking with family members about this, and you know, very careful to to make sure that um, we did it in a way that was respectful and supportive uh, for for the for the folks we were asking to tell their stories. That was WGCU's Carrie Barber talking last month with Michael Rosenfeld. He's executive producer of the new PBS documentary called Facing Suicide. If you are thinking about harming yourself or attempting suicide, tell someone who can help by calling or texting the number 988. 
We also spoke earlier with Jenny Lapham. She's the Florida Warm Line Coordinator with NAMI Collier County. It's a free mental health support phone service that's open 365 days a year from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. to anyone in Florida. They can be reached by calling 1-800-945-1355. That's 1-800-945-1355. You can find links to all of the information we discussed today on our website, wgcu.org gcl before we end the show today i'd like to pass along the latest information from lcec about its power restoration efforts especially in cape coral and north fort myers where many people are still without power as of the end of the day yesterday lcec had just over 2300 line and vegetation crews working on power restoration to the remaining lcec customers without power a spokesperson says additional crews are becoming available and they're working as quickly as possible until all customers able to receive power are restored. A convoy of 350 line workers and support personnel from Duke Energy arrived this morning to focus on restoring power in Cape Coral. Duke Energy's crews will begin restoration on Pine Island as soon as customers in other areas of LCEC service territory are restored. And once access to Sanibel is possible, rebuilding will also begin there. As of 5 a.m. this morning, there are still 68,000 LCEC customers in Cape Coral without power and 56,000 in North Fort Myers. A company spokesperson says they are still on schedule to have all power restored to both of those areas for those who are able to safely receive power at their homes and businesses by the end of the day tomorrow. All LCEC customers on Pine Island and Sanibel will remain without power for the foreseeable future. And we're going to end today's show with a story from WLRN's Tim Paget. He's one of the many journalists from across Florida and around the country who have come to southwest Florida to help us tell stories of people being impacted by Hurricane Ian. He says while much of the rebuilding here will be done by migrant workers, many of them feel overlooked by relief efforts and demonized by Governor Ron DeSantis. Hurricane Ian sent almost five feet of storm surge into the trailer home neighborhoods of South Naples near Rookery Bay. Furniture, drywall, appliances, and toys ruined by the sewage-tainted floodwaters now line their narrow streets. Just about all the residents there are Latin American migrant workers. Many work in construction, which in Florida is experiencing an acute labor shortage, so they'll be vital to the post-hurricane rebuilding efforts. Margarita Avina's family is among them. All the builders, workers are Latinos, immigrants, They did all the hard work, rebuild the houses and everything in this county. This week, Avina and her neighbors received food and other aid from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and the Mission Peniel in Immokalee, a town of mostly migrant workers east of Naples. But many said they were also wrestling with how Governor Ron DeSantis emphasized on Tuesday that three people arrested for looting after the hurricane are undocumented immigrants. Gerardo Reyes is a Coalition of Immokalee Workers organizer. In moments like this, migrant workers are often just political scapegoats. But we all depend on the work that the people that we're attacking as a society are doing for all of us. The town of Immokalee itself experienced relatively minor damage from Ian. For WGCU News, I'm Tim Paget in Fort Myers. That's all the time we have for today's show. Stay with WGCU as we continue to do our best to provide you with updates about recovery efforts across southwest Florida. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Carrie Barber and myself. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canivery. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.